Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, Elizabeth and I are on the beaches of Fort Lauderdale, and we're talking about wedding cakes, a win for the DOJ, and the illegal immigrant abortion case, and we'll interview 11th Circuit Judge Kevin Newsom. The Supreme Court issued a few opinions this week, including one biggie, Masterpiece Cake Shop. The court also decided two sentencing guidelines cases. Super exciting stuff, right, Tiffany? Yeah. And another dealing with the bankruptcy code and discharging a debt. That's That one's my favorite. <laughs> Just kidding. I did not read it. Um, the court also issued a per curiam opinion, which means it was unsigned, in Azar v. Garza. So the court vacated a lower court ruling that allowed an illegal immigrant minor to have an abortion. This was a case where a 17-year-old pregnant girl known as Jane Doe was caught entering the country illegally in Texas. While in government custody, she asked for an abortion, but the federal government said they did not want to facilitate the abortion. So she sued in federal court and was represented by the ACLU, and the D.C. Circuit ruled for her, clearing the path to get an abortion. The ACLU lawyers told the government that she was going to have a consultation with an abortion doctor, which is required under Texas law, on October 25th of last year, and then have the abortion one day later on October 26th. And the ACLU lawyer agreed to keep the government informed about the schedule. So the Solicitor General's office was planning to petition the Supreme Court to stay the D.C. Circuit's decision, and the ACLU lawyers knew this, but then the ACLU moved up the abortion so the government couldn't seek Supreme Court review. And the government asked the Supreme Court to vacate this lower court decision so it wouldn't stand as precedent in future cases, which is what the court did. Yeah, so the Supreme Court vacated the D.C. Circuit ruling with instructions for the lower court to dismiss the claim as moot. The court explained that vacating the ruling is appropriate when mootness occurs through the unilateral action of the party who prevailed in the lower court. The court explained that it would certainly be a strange doctrine that would permit a plaintiff to obtain a favorable judgment, take voluntary action that moots the dispute, and then retain the benefit of the judgment. The government also asked the court to discipline the ACLU attorneys for making material misrepresentations that were designed to thwart the Supreme Court's review. Now, material misrepresentations is basically lawyer speak for lying. (laughs) Um, The court did not act on this, uh, writing that it did not need to delve into the factual disputes raised by the parties in order to answer the underlying question here, but that the government's allegations were serious and that they took them seriously. Uh, so the court said, while not all communication breakdowns constitute misconduct, attorneys must remain aware of the principle that zealous advocacy does not displace their obligations as officers of the court. Especially in fast-paced emergency proceedings like those at issue here, it's critical that the lawyers and court alike be able to rely on one another's representations. So although the language the court used was pretty nice, it seems to me kind of like a smoke signal uh, that the ACLU better be careful and not pull the shenanigans <laughs> like this in the future because it was it was pretty bad. So that brings us to the big decision of this week, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. This is probably the best known case of the term. This is the case of Jack Phillips, a Colorado baker who would not make a custom cake for a same-sex wedding because of his religious beliefs. The state's Civil Rights Commission found that he had engaged in sexual orientation discrimination. So no surprise here, Justice Kennedy wrote the majority opinion and the 
the court ruled 7-2 that the Colorado Commission's treatment of Jack Phillips violated the First Amendment. Justice Kennedy explained that the government cannot act in a manner that passes judgment upon or presupposes the illegitimacy of religious beliefs and practices. So the record here showed that in considering whether whether Phillips violated Colorado's anti-discrimination laws, uh, Kennedy wrote that the commission was neither tolerant nor respectful of his religious beliefs. Kennedy pointed to the fact that that the commission allowed three other bakers to refuse a customer's request to design a custom cake on the basis of conscience. Members of the State Civil Rights Commission compared Phillips and his religious beliefs to defenders of the Holocaust and slavery, saying that using religion to justify discrimination is despicable and offensive. Kennedy concluded that this cast serious doubt on the fairness and impartiality of the commission's adjudication of Phillips' case. Now, there were several concurrences here, as you might expect. Uh, Justice Kagan and Justice Gorsuch had dueling concurrences looking at the other cases where a baker had refused to make a particular case. In these cases that ended up before the Colorado Commission, bakers refused to make cakes that expressed disapproval of same-sex marriage and included quotes from the Bible. Now, Justice Gorsuch wrote that the commission held Jack Phillips to a different standard and, quote, gerrymandered their inquiries based on the parties they preferred. Justice Kagan wrote that Colorado could treat Jack Phillips differently because he discriminated on the basis of sexual orientation, and the other bakers didn't discriminate on any ground that the state prote- uh, prohibits. Uh, but at the end of the day, that didn't matter for this case because Kagan agreed with the majority that the commission's actions were infected by religious hostility and bias. Justice Thomas also wrote a concurrence saying that um, he agrees with the judgment, but that this is a straight-up free speech case, and that wedding cakes are packed with symbolism. He described the Masterpiece logo, which is an artist uh, paint palette and a paintbrush and a whisk. And he wrote um, how Phillips has a picture behind the counter that depicts him as an artist painting on the canvas, and how... Uh, involved he is with the creation of these wedding cakes. He also wrote that when the court recognized a right to same-sex marriage, he warned that the decision would inevitably come into conflict with religious liberty as individuals are confronted with demands to participate in and endorse civil marriages between same-sex couples. So obviously that conflict has already emerged, and Thomas explained that the freedom of speech will be essential to preventing Obergefell from being used to stamp out every vestige of dissent and vilify Americans who are unwilling to assent to the new orthodoxy. So there was a lot of buzz on Twitter about certain certain, uh, news outlets calling this a narrow ruling. I thought this was kind of silly, but I could understand some people see, oh, it's a 7-2 decision, and think there's no way you can call that a narrow ruling. But in fact, the ruling was pretty narrow. It's heavily fact-bound, and it didn't get to the underlying conflict between free speech and gay rights, as Justice Thomas's concurrence points out. Uh, And there are other wedding industry cases still pending, such as Arlene's Flowers. So I think it's safe to say that this is not the last we'll hear from the Supreme Court on this issue. We recently spoke with Judge Kevin Newsom. Kevin Newsom is a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Judge Newsom. No, thank you. You clerked for 9th Circuit Judge Dermot O'Scanlan. Tell us about that experience. Uh, it was wonderful. Uh, Portland is, you know, was a city as far away from the city, you know, the city that I grew up in, Birmingham, both geographically <laughs> and culturally, and to spend a year in Portland was terrific. Um, and I'm still very close to Judge O'Scanlan, and I am particularly close to the three guys I clerked with, mm-hmm. um, John Cohn, Tom Ward, Mark Namalini. In fact, all three of them came 
to my confirmation hearing. All three participated in my investiture. So really, the best thing about that year was making these lifelong friendships that I maintain to this day. That's wonderful. Yeah. You also clerked for Justice David Souter, and now I'm assuming you had lunch with Justice Souter sometimes. So is it true that he had an apple and plain yogurt every day And lunch? the further piece of the legend that he eats the core of the apple. <gasps> oh, that's right. I've read that somewhere. Because he doesn't want to waste anything. I did not. <laughs> I've never heard he that. He is a frugal New Englander through and through. I've never witnessed the core eating, but... The legend lives on. Wow. <laughs> That's something. Um, so all kidding aside, Justice Souter tends to shy away from public attention. So tell us what he's really like. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, he is, number one, beyond brilliant. Uh, my co-clerks and I would joke about the fact that he could have done the job without us. He had us <laughs> around for sort of kicks and giggles. Um, but he is also, you know, he has this very sort of serious and stern, I think, sort of public persona. Mm-hmm. And I think very much like Justice Thomas in private, he's very much the opposite. He is uh, a lot of fun, likes to laugh, is a wonderful storyteller, tells lots of wonderful stories on himself, mm-hmm. likes to kind of goof on himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, in, in many, many ways, he is not the book to be judged by its cover. I really think that he and Justice Thomas, perhaps in that respect, are more alike than any two that have been on the court in a long time. That's great to hear. Yeah. So what was your favorite memory of your clerkship? Oh, boy. Um, so many. Uh, the best story really arising out of my clerkship is how I got it. Um, I can tell the short version of this story. Um, so I interviewed with Justice Souter in the spring of 1999. Historically, Justice Souter interviewed late. Um, mm-hmm. And so I interviewed in the spring of 99 for a clerkship to begin that summer. And, uh, you know, after a, I went in, met the clerks, met Justice Souter, and thought it went reasonably well. And about, um, you know, a couple of months later, get a very polite, what appears to be sort of thanks but no thanks letter from <laughs> Justice Souter. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I, had, I was at Covington and Burling, sort of settled back into my practice there, got to working with two lawyers there who I really loved and admired on a couple of cases, as it turned out, that were in the Supreme Court. And... Um, uh, you know, so you flash forward into the summer of 2000, about this time of the year, um, and the second of those two cases still had not yet been decided. So I decided, uh, just on a lark, to take a cab up to the court and watch the hand downs. And lo and behold, the second of those two cases was decided. It was a breach of contract case, effectively, for Exxon Mobil against the government. Justice Breyer announces the opinion. We win. I go back to the office. And I've got all the, I got a slew of voicemail messages from people saying, you know, oh, congratulations on winning Exxon, get me a copy of the opinion. And the 12th of 12 voicemail messages is from my assistant. And she says, Kevin, this is Barbara. A gentleman named Souter from the Supreme Court called and asked if you could call him back. <laughs> and so I thought, well, all, I don't know much about the Supreme Court. I'm just a young buck lawyer at, at Covington. I do know two things. One, that as the hand downs are occurring, the clerk's office calls the lead lawyer on either side of the case to say, you won, you lost, here's what happened. And two, that the clerk of the court at the time was William K. Souter, S-U-T-E-R. And so I just had a number, so I dialed it. I I couldn't quite figure out why it was that they would be calling me, since I was like the third guy down on the signature (laughs) block, or why William K. Souter was making his own telephone calls. Doesn't he have people to do this for him? Uh, So I had a phone number, and I dialed it up, and a voice says hello, and I said, hi, this is Kevin Newsom calling from Covington and Burling, and he says, "Um, oh, Kevin, congratulations on winning the Exxon case this morning. And I thought, okay, thank you. 
And he said, uh, but I tell you what, this, um, this case has been a thorn in my side. And I said, really, is that so? And he said, um, yeah, this is a call that I've been needing to make for more than a year now. And I thought, well, now we're in the twilight zone. I have no idea what's happening. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And he said, so if you still want the clerkship, it's yours. I thought, dear God, I'm not talking to William Souter. I'm talking to David Souter. And it wasn't until that moment that I realized who I was talking to. And so the backstory is, essentially, when I went in and interviewed, he thought, yeah, this is someone I want to hire. But um, he probably doesn't fit quite as well with the group of clerks that I've already hired for 99, so I'll just carry him over for 2000 and he said he dilly-dallied around just long enough without calling me to offer me the job for the first of the two cert petitions to come in with my name on it. Uh-huh. And he thought, oh, rats, like now I can't <laughs> call him. And so he said he was waiting, waiting, waiting for that Exxon case to be decided. And when at the conference or whatever, Justice Breyer tells then Chief Justice Rehnquist, I've got Exxon ready to go, he said he pulled the justices. He said, okay, here's the deal. I've been needing to call one of the lawyers on that case to offer him a clerkship. Can I do it now? Uh, or do I have to wait for the petition for rehearing to come in and be denied? And they said, no, 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 you can call him. So, <laughs> so I always tell people now that I've been the subject of a conference at the Supreme Court. My, oh, my clerkship great. offer was the subject of a conference. That's at the a really Supreme great Court. story. So, yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I love it. So you also served as the Solicitor General of Alabama under uh, Bill Pryor, who's been on the podcast before, and he's now serving on the 11th Circuit. Tell us about that experience. Oh, it was just outstanding. I think I was 30 or 31 when I started that job, um, and you just the experience that you have in that job is unmatched, um, except perhaps being in the Solicitor General's office in Washington. But the great thing about being a state SG is that when you're not arguing cases in the U.S. Supreme Court. You are arguing cases elsewhere. So you're doing lots of work in the courts of appeals and the state Supreme Courts. And, um, you know, I think you, you mature quickly in that job because you have to learn how to run something, mm-hmm. how to sort of set policy for the office and run something and manage people and personalities. Um, so it was really an outstanding experience. And in many respects, I have not only Bill Pryor, but also Jeff Sutton to thank for that job because Uh, Judge Sutton, of course, was sort of the pioneer of the modern state solicitor general movement and is the one who encouraged me to reach out to Bill Pryor when I didn't know him from Adam, uh, (laughs) when when Judge Sutton was then at Jones Day and had called to recruit me and every other Supreme Court law clerk to go to Jones Day. When I told him that I thought I would end up going back to Covington, he was as nice as he could be. This won't surprise you because you know him and he's a super nice guy. And he said, well, I gather from your resume that you're from Alabama you should get to know my buddy Bill Pryor. Mm -hmm. And sort of one thing led to another, and I did get to know Bill, and that is how I ended up with that job, and sort of the rest is history. But it was just an outstanding experience. So I think you argued four cases at the Supreme Court. Right. Which was the most memorable? Uh, The most memorable, I guess, is the most recent, which now isn't all that recent. It was a case I had in private practice, although it was for the governor of Alabama. It was a Voting Rights Act case called Riley versus Kennedy, And I would say it's the most memorable in part because I was up against sort of two titans of that, of the Supreme Court bar and of that area of the law, Pam Carlin, Mm -hmm. who, as I say, quite literally wrote the book on the Voting Rights Act because she did write the book on the Voting (laughs) Rights Act, and Canon Chamagam, who I go way back with all the way to law school. He was in the SG's office. The the U.S. government was against us. And... um, so, you know, sort of feeling overmatched and outwitted and outgunned um, was fun. And 
it's a case, I won't bore you with all of the details, but it's a case in which we made a strategic decision essentially between the moot courts that we did in the run-up to the argument and the argument itself to switch the order of two arguments and argue the case a different way or with a different emphasis than we had briefed it. Mm -hmm. And I honestly believe that that won us the case, which is pretty cool. Very rarely does the oral argument matter enough to like swing the result, but Mm -hmm. I actually think it mattered. Mm -hmm. And so I really have my mooters to thank for that, for helping me to kind of find that path in the run-up to the argument. It's all about the marketing, yeah. Yeah. So what did you learn from uh, now Judge Pryor when he was your boss? Well, I mean, you know, so the great thing about Bill Pryor, and this is not true of every state attorney general, of course, but uh, I always say some state attorneys general are politicians who happen to have a law license. Bill Pryor is a lawyer who happened to be a politician. And so, uh, you know, he, from the very first, you know, sort of day on the job, was editing briefs. You know, he would sit in his office as the attorney general in between speaking engagements or whatever and literally edit Supreme Court briefs. And that's very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the, what most people don't know is that uh, about three months after Bill Pryor hired me, he ran off and left me to take the <laughs> recess appointment on the 11th Circuit. Yeah. So, in fact, he was only my boss for about three months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he and I have maintained a wonderful relationship and friendship ever since. And what's it like serving alongside him now on the yeah, 11th Circuit? Yeah, it's, uh, it's really great. I mean, it's sort of like it would be like practicing law with your best friend. Uh, you know, he's across <laughs> the hall, and he and I are in one another's offices all the time. Um, and, you know, it's, I think it's also fun for his law clerks who have been alone on the ninth floor for a long time now to have, you know, five new buddies in yeah. my uh, chambers. So it's really uh, just so much fun. So now that you're a judge, are you starting any traditions with your law clerks? Yes. Yeah, so um, we try, we have two things, I guess. One, I've learned that I've become somewhat famous on the law clerk sort of hiring uh, circuit uh, for having a ping pong table, which is true. Um, when we moved into our space, the first thing you see when you walk in is sort of an ante room. I guess for a district court judge, it would be where you know the district court judge would receive visitors. But as you guys know, appellate court judges really don't have many visitors. The UPS person comes. And, um, but so we decided to move all of that furniture out and put a ping pong table in the front room. Uh, so we have the ping pong uh, tradition. And then one thing we try to do is that um, I allow each of the clerks, uh, we everybody puts in essentially into a fishbowl, a restaurant in town where they really want to go. And then we draw them out of the fishbowl and everybody goes together one day a week. And so we're sort of, you know, in and about different restaurants in Birmingham to check them out so that they can get exposure to what Birmingham has to offer. That's great. And I should say before we move on that yeah. uh, Birmingham, the restaurant in Birmingham just won the James Beard Award for the best really? restaurant in America. And what was wow. that? Highlands Bar and Grill. It's been a finalist for 10 straight years, I think. And, you know, sort of with restaurants in New York and San Francisco and L.A. coming on and dropping off, and Highlands has always been there and finally won. That's really great. Do there they have, like, a signature dish that they serve? Uh, you know, it's sort of uh, chic southern, I guess, uh-huh. as you would expect. Um, my favorite is the... Uh, Cheese grit cake with crumbled ham and bacon on top, which is that delish. Good. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds yummy. So, as a judge, you have a punchy writing style that is just really enjoyable to read. Do you have any judicial role models for your writing? You know, you're so nice to say that. I appreciate it. Um, people comment and ask about my writing style all the time, and I don't. It's funny. I don't really aspire to a style. I don't even realize <laughs> that I have one. Um, I 
I believe pretty firmly, and I did as a lawyer as well, that lawyers and judges should write the way they talk, for the most part, should write the way they talk. Um, and so I guess I'd kind of try to do that, and I sort of only know how to do it one way. But it clearly is, I don't know, distinctive or unique or something because people comment on it. Um, but, you know, I guess I want the writing to be fun and interesting, not only to the reader, but also, I guess, somewhat selfishly to me. I mean, what I have always loved about being a lawyer was writing. If someone said, you can either write or speak, but not both, then I would write. And now, that's 99.8% of my job, really, is writing. And so it's what I really love. And so I want it to be fun, sort of selfishly, for me. <laughs> I think I think it was your first case. I remember reading it. The first line was, this is a tax case. Fear not, keep reading. Keep reading, yeah. that's yeah. right, yeah. I really that was a fun it. one. So you're on President's, President Trump's not-so-short list for the Supreme Court. And how did you learn that you were on the list? Yeah, great question. All of the stories, I remember when I was watching uh, my friend Melissa Parr's confirmation hearing. He was the, the, the only, I guess, appeals court judge to go through before I did. So I had to sort of study up on mm-hmm. his confirmation hearing. And when I watched it, I remember he was asked by one of the senators how it was that he learned that he was on the list. And he said he had no idea. One of his law clerks told him. And I remember thinking at the time, like, can that possibly be true? (laughs) And then uh, I was actually flying from Atlanta to Washington for the Federalist Society's National Lawyers Convention Mm -hmm. and landed at Reagan National, pulled my phone out of my pocket, you know, fire up the, uh, the cell signal, and it just melts because, you know, there are a thousand texts from people saying, like, have you seen the list? You're on the list. And I had no idea that, that they were going to expand it, that I would be on it. Um, so, I mean, very humbling and gratifying to be on it. Um, but I really, it's true. You really don't know that you're going to be added That's to it. That's funny. So we probably found out before you did. Yeah, probably yeah. so. Yeah. Probably so. Yeah. Uh, so one final question, something we ask all of our guests here at SCOTUS 101. Yes. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? All right. So I have a unique answer here. I've known from listening to your podcast that I was going to get this question. So I have a unique <laughs> answer. Samuel Freeman Miller. All right. Tell and us. And do you know him. why? I know nothing about yes. Justice Miller. So Justice Miller wrote the slaughterhouse cases. And I have this sort of unique, quirky theory of the slaughterhouse cases that dominated most of the questioning of me, anyway, at my confirmation hearing. It was the subject of the only law review article I've ever written, which I wrote um, as as an associate at Covington and Burling and published in the Yale Law Journal. And basically, so I would want to talk to Justice Miller to ask him if he thinks I've got the slaughterhouse (laughs) cases right. Because my thesis, in short, really is that... um, that you know the slaughterhouse cases have have come to stand for this proposition that the privileges or immunities clause really can't stand for anything, mm-hmm. um, and my view was that if you really understand Miller's judicial philosophy, that Miller probably envisioned the privileges or immunities clause, at the very least, incorporating some substantial component of the Bill of Rights, mm-hmm. but not sort of Lochnerizing. Uh, sort of the amendment in the way the plaintiff butchers envisioned. Mm-hmm. And so that his opinion is actually this sort of compromise interpretation of the Privileges or Immunities Clause that would, frankly, allow the court to do what Justice Thomas was talking about doing in uh, McDonald, mm-hmm. where he said, Doesn't, wouldn't it make more sense to incorporate the Second Amendment through the Privileges or Immunities Clause rather than the Due Process Clause? I would want to know from him, did I get it right? Did yeah. I get it right? So, yeah. 
That would be a great conversation. And my guess is that none of your podcastees from here until the end of time will vote for Justice Miller. <laughs> so it'll be a solo uh, dinner with the Justice Miller and myself. That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Religious Liberty Edition, in light of Masterpiece. Okay. A couple historical questions first. Okay. James Madison's draft of the Bill of Rights did not include the phrase, free exercise of religion. What phrase did he initially propose? Ooh. Mm. I'm going to guess that exercise wasn't the word that he used. I guess not. Um, I, don't, I don't know. You got me. Okay. Um, the initial proposal said the equal rights of conscience. Oh, yeah. yeah. And scholars yeah. have uh, pondered whether if that was the language that had been ratified, um, whether it would have provided more robust religious liberty protections. But there's yeah. disputes whether it actually would have would have done that. Okay. Second question. Another Madison question. <laughs> oh, great. You know I love James Madison. Um, in his essay on property, what does James Madison call the most sacred of all property? Uh, the freedom of conscience. Yes, conscience. I know you love that quote. You use it a lot. <laughs> okay, third question. What case incorporated the free exercise clause against the states? Oh, gosh. Um, man, I'm really in a strikeout today. Let's see. I'll give you a hint. Yeah, I'm just having... It involved blank Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, was it uh, was it the one with where they didn't want to send their kids to school after a certain after no. a certain age? That's no, a that's case. a different Jehovah's Witness yeah. case. Was it um, was it the Barnett sisters? No, nope. they were Jehovah's Witness, right? I think so. Okay, yeah, I, I don't know. Okay, the case is Cantwell versus Connecticut in mm. 1940. And the Cantwells were Jehovah's Witnesses, and they were arrested for violating a Connecticut statute requiring people to get a certificate in order to solicit money from the public. So they were, like, going around preaching, like, a very Catholic area, and they almost got into a fight with these <laughs> people. They didn't fight, but anyway, uh, they were arrested, and the Supreme Court held that their activity was protected by the First and Fourteenth Amendments. The Jehovah's Witnesses have had more than their fair share of cases, like big there, cases at the yeah, Supreme there Court. Are a lot of them. So way to go, guys. <laughs> okay, next question. In Church of Lukumi versus Hialeah, which was cited several times in Masterpiece Cake Shop, the Supreme Court held that a city violated the free exercise rights of Santeria when it prohibited them from ritually slaughtering what kind of animal? Chickens. Yeah. It's chickens <laughs> most of the time. So they apparently did some other animals too, but it was primarily chickens. As, and as part of this ritual, they cooked them and then ate them. Um, and in, that, in this case, there was also clear evidence of hostility to the Santeria religion. Mm -hmm. And at the Hylia City Council meeting, a councilman said the practice of Santeria is in violation of everything the country stands for. And there were a lot of other similar statements showing hostility. Okay, final question. In 2006, the court held in Gonzales versus Ocentro that the government did not show a compelling interest in prohibiting religious adherents from consuming what? Uh, it was... It's the medicinal tea, right? Yes. Uh, oh, what's it called? It starts with an O, doesn't it? No, no? but it was a sacramental tea that con contained a hallucinogen. I forget what it's called. Uh, and it was we'll brewed it by plants 
that are unique to the Amazon rainforest. Yes. Um, well, I think you did a pretty good job. Uh, you know, like no, I got the, the chickens and the tea, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.